So the story behind the victims of the Faulty Horizon accounting software scandal and the post office scandal is all un unraveling. You have massive uproar about that because there were people left in the dark, people's lives completely ruined for years, thinking they were guilty, that they shafted people. You know, we had suicides, we had way, way worse than that, but it's all coming out. And we're going to be diving that today. We got Ben Habib for Reform UK Deputy Leader, who is an MEP who is part of Reform, who is going to be running in Wellingborough by-election. And there's a lot of optimism over that based on the constituent. It was a Brexit place. It was a very Tory place. Does he actually have a chance to make through and break the two-party monopoly? And Matt Howen Matt Hancock defends catastrophe decision to empty COVID-infected patients into care homes, which was a later story a while back. But today, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by a social care activist, part of the Together Cabinet. It is Amanda Hunter. Do you want to give a little introduction about who you are and what you're about to anyone who doesn't know? Okay. Right. So um, I've been a social care campaigner for some time. I actually... Uh, took a degree in social care, uh, social policy and politics, but I didn't actually go into that. I went into teaching. But because of my own experiences uh, looking after my mother, um, I became a social care activist in the last three years during uh, the pandemic and uh, and onwards um, because I saw what how awful it was. I mean, I've seen the social care sector 360 degrees from assisted living care homes nursing homes uh, domiciliary care and how people are treated in hospital and it's all appalling and we should be ashamed um or our government should be ashamed um yeah so i also i set up uh, unlock care homes during uh, the pandemic in 2021 i think it was march we set up lot lots to unpack there and we'll definitely go into that later about you know everything that happened during covid because mm. there were horrific videos that spilled from families not being able to see i remember there's a famous one in a car park there's endless things then other things to do with what the government was actually treating people in care homes and the handling of elderly people and also the putting of people with covid and there's just an endless carnage of um, mm. travesties that happen but I'm um, starting off with the first thing that I want to talk about today is the post office scandal so everyone's probably seen it it's been all across the news and it's to do with the victims of the post office scandal so the post office scandal is coming under renewed scrutiny following a tv drama into how computerized accounting systems ruined the lives for many staff and their families more than 700 post office branch managers were given criminal convictions after faulty Fijitusu, I'm definitely saying that wrong, accounting software called Horizon made it appear as though money was missing from their shops. Justice Secretary Alex Chalk and Poster, Postal Minister Kevin Hollinrake will discuss the scandal in the wake of the renewed scrutiny following the conclusion of a four-part ITV drama. Um, and Lord, I'm, I'm so terrible at reading names, Arbenot, who was an MP at the time of the scandal, told Sky News one of the greatest problems is that there have been 700 and 900 convictions of sob postmasters and only 93 have been overturned. That is an awful small, pathetically small number. So what are your kind of thoughts of the post office scandal? Because the person who raised this was actually, ironically, Andrew Bridgen, and that is the man that is calling for other things, similar with your event, but what are your kind of thoughts of what happened 
in the post office scandal? Well, I think it was an absolute travesty. And, um, you know, there were some politicians, very few, uh, Bridgen among them, who did uh, raise this. Uh, and, but it, you know, nothing was done. Uh, nothing was done. The families fought and fought. And as you said, there were many people who um, were traumatized by the experience. They they lost their jobs, they lost their livelihoods, they lost their, you know, divided their families. They, some committed suicide, I believe. You know, it, it really was um, a travesty. And uh, all to do, down to some software. Um, but also the main thing, a lack of accountability. And I think what what this kind of illustrates um, is is how this how the state behaves um, and how the public are not being served by our public institutions. And, and worse than that, they are becoming the victims in some cases of our public institutions. And I think of you know, uh, people whose children have been taken away from them by social services, perfectly functioning families who may have been had financial problems, um, may have had other other problems that could have been helped, you know, that could have been solved um, with some support. Um, uh, their families have been torn apart, their children taken away from them and put into care and foster care. And this is not um, this is not helpful. And uh, these families are, are, you know, fighting in the courts to get their children back. It's 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 horrific. And then you've got, you know, um, people like myself. I, I fought for a year to get my mum out of a, an, um, an elderly care home. Uh, the state said that she was better off there. And it was a fight against the state. And the, it, it, it colluded, basic social services colluded with the care home and then later on colluded with the hospital uh, to keep me, keep my mum in institutional care and not allow me to bring her home. So the, 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 in, in the realm of social care, I mean, I see this, these kind of, um, you know, these power relationships all the time. And I think during lockdown, I mean, it was bad before, but during lockdown, our, our state institutions, um, there was a kind of seismic power shift you know, in, in power between the individual and the state and families and the state. And as I said before in my, you know, my introduction about uh, care homes is that the, they have been given powers that they are very reluctant to give up. And precedents have been set. And I think that the what the drama did is that it, it enraged and engaged people in equal measure. And I think if you look on social media about what people have been saying about it, and especially around people that I'm in touch with, you know, people around social care and health, I mean, you know, for them, it's very familiar ground to them. You know, it particularly resonates with uh, people that found themselves in a battle with the state. Um, you know, as I said, against social services, the NHS, you know, around negligence cases, for example, for, trying to get those heard. For someone um, who doesn't, for someone who doesn't know what the case is, right? If you just give a little outline, because I'm just aware, maybe some people don't know what happened with the post office scandal. Is right. Well, uh, the the postal um, postal officers, um, what are they called? The postmasters. Post submasters, I think. Post submasters. Yes, were accused of uh, basically defrauding the post office and um, of thousands and thousands of pounds. And it turns out that it was um, a computer 
error. And they fought for years and years and years to clear their names. Uh, but nobody did anything. And, you know, to, to their re, you know, the recourse to justice was very, very, very difficult for them to obtain. They just had doors shut in their faces. And I think with um around stuff around social services, which obviously is something that I can talk about a lot, um, it's the same thing. You know, families who are, want to take on the state, either for negligence negligence in the NHS or, you know, problems with social services, find themselves without a leg to stand because they cannot get access to justice. Uh, one of the people that I'm supporting at the moment, I think I told you I'm supporting three families. One of these families is a guy up in Scotland who's fighting to get his mother out of care home. And he has called 80 lawyers, 80 lawyers, and none of them will take on the case because it would be a legal aid case and they're not interested. They want, you know, they're only interested in cases they can make a lot of money from. And uh, these cases, are, they, they won't touch them. And so unless you've got very, very deep pockets and you're also very, very strong minded and resilient, um, most families give up, you know, uh, and, the, you know, with the, the, I mean, credit to those who continued their fight, you know, to clear their names. But it shouldn't have taken this long. Mm. And it's quite interesting about the inquiry, because uh, one of the people who works with me on, on Together Social Care Cabinet Group, is the uh, whistleblower campaigner uh, Eileen Chubb, who set up Compassion and Care. Now, Eileen was uh, a self-care worker and she whistleblew uh, on poor care. She lost her job. She went on to set up um, Compassion and Care and she campaigns for and supports whistleblowers. And she has said that the she's been very complimentary about the inquiry and how it's been led and saying it was a masterclass in, in how an inquiry should be run. And she compared it to the abysmal COVID inquiry, uh, which maybe we can talk about a bit later. But it's um, it should not have taken this long. And, um, and, and it's the same, you know, with the people I'm talking about, you know, who've got battles with NHS or social services. They find themselves up against a brick wall. They are victimised. They are bullied. They are threatened. I had it myself. You know, and they, these obstacles are put in their path. They, they, you know, to fight to get justice is such a battle, such a battle. And uh, it shouldn't be this way. And I totally agree with David Davis, uh, who said, you know, that um, all these cases, it shouldn't be just 93 that are, you know, going to be compensated. All of them should be compensated without question. There should be because, no, you know, that the, 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 you know, the post officer said, oh, yes, yes, we're going to we're going to sort this out. And we're going to, you know, compensate people. And then what do they do? They put obstacles in that way and they are preventing people from from getting justice. And that, you know, they're, they're doing everything they can to prevent these people actually claiming, you know, getting justice and claiming back yeah i i think you really kind of encapsulated the pain of a lot of people because i i can't even begin to picture how frustrating it must be not just like just pure anger when you know you're in the right but you're fighting the state or whoever it is to just have the right to do something or you're and you're getting constantly accused of it and for the these people who went through this like their lives have been completely ruined like a lot didn't a lot of them get criminal records and stuff um 
and they're like lost houses divorces it's just such a scandal and it it kind of also shows how difficult it is to raise things before scandals actually happen like everyone after something happened comes out like all the mps now saying their constituents were writing to them but it's before that happens who are those who stand up and i think we got examples like andrew bridgen or sir christopher trope you know there's quite a few different um mps who are big are willing to speak about certain things people aren't to or even someone like steve baker with lockdowns one of the few mps to actually kind of challenge the extended lockdown um and i think we like what i guess the question is what do you think we can do to prevent something like this happening in the future i think we need to be very um vigilant you know i think and i think we should join in you know we need to join in solidarity i think we need to i think the problem is and i think what this has illustrated is the powers that are vested in the state and the the state during lockdown usurped many of our you know our rights our liberties and our powers and as i said the authorities and you know private enterprises like care homes which are given these these uh, powers are very reluctant to give them up and i think what the post office scandal has further convinced uh, it has done is it's further convinced you know the post pandemic public that our state apparatus and political system do not serve them and are in fact rotten to the core and you know as as a i said that i was on the receiving end of um uh, you know state um threatening and bullying I tried to get my mother out of a care home. I was told that she was best off in a care home. I had lasting power of attorney. It was ignored. Um, I had to contest. Um, they put a dolls on my mother, which is a deprivation, deprivation of liberty order, which is what they do um, to keep people in a care home and stop the family getting them out. It's supposed to be to protect them, uh, but it's being abused, like the Mental Capacity Act, for example, and thing, the, these protections that, in theory, are fantastic, um, in practice, they are being abused and it's the families who are paying the price for it. And in my case, um, not only did I face a battle getting my mum out of a care home, I then had a battle with the hospital to get to see her in the hospital. She was denied uh, any visitors, although she was uh, end of life, she had Alzheimer. In that case, she should have been allowed visitors, you know, even according to the government guidelines, she should have been able to have visitors. And it was denied. And my mum basically, um, she, they weren't feeding her, they weren't giving her drink, she was declining. Okay. And they called me after day seven and said, you can come in now, your mum's dying, you know. God. So I had that fight. Then I, in, but she was then put on a palliative care pathway, and we will talk about that later maybe, but... I then had a battle with the hospital because they wanted to keep my mother on the pathway. I'm saying, no, I've got lasting power of attorney. They're saying it's irrelevant. I then have to go to the court of protection to get my mother back home. And it didn't end there. My battle continued. I got my mum home. We had a very poor care agency. Uh, I can, you know, horrific, horrific. Turned out that the care kept company that had been um, commissioned to do the job by the uh, NHS CHC, which is continuing healthcare, uh, didn't have capacity and had actually farmed out the contract to um, a, a third party 
who wasn't even CQC, that's the Care Quality Commission, registered. So it was a total cowboy outfit. And I had, in one week, I think I had 15 different carers come in who didn't know what they were doing. They had no idea about how to look after somebody like my mother. And, of course, there were tensions. And, um, you know, I complained and I, I fell on deaf ears. And so I went to the local authority. And they said, oh, we're very concerned about these, these issues you're raising there, you know, serious safeguarding issues. Are you happy to, you know, make a, an official complaint? And I said, well, you, you know, I'm not so sure. I thought I don't want any trouble. And they said, well, if you don't, you know, raise the complaint, then companies like that will be able to carry on with impunity. So I thought, well, yes, you're right. And so I made the complaint. The outcome of it was that the care company um told the chc continuing health card that i was the problem and the there was then an investigation a safeguarding investigation against me saying that i was a risk to my mother God. now i was vindicated i was vindicated so, uh, the social worker that took on the investigation was fairly fair um I didn't get the outcome I wanted, but she did. I was vindicated. I asked her to go get in touch with all the people that had been involved in my mum's care, apart from the care company. So district nurses, occupational therapy, these people and the GP. And they said if it hadn't been for Amanda, her mother wouldn't be here. Wow. So but then the CHC, instead of apologising, this is continuing healthcare NHS, sent me a very nasty, threatening letter saying, this is your last chance, this is your last care company we're going to commission. And if you don't behave, I still have the letter. If you don't behave, sort of, that was the gist of the letter, we will, uh, we will put your mother into institutional care again and um, we will fight it in the court of protection. So bullying, threatening behaviour because a daughter wanted to care for her mother at home. You know, the state, you know, there is no, there seems to be no bounds for those people who work in the state, um, the lengths they will go to, um, to, you know, to, to, um, to vindicate, not vindicate, sorry, vilify families and, um, and, uh, you know, serve their own agendas. And, um, I mean, if people said this to me 10 years ago, five years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. You know, but I've seen it with my own eyes and um, the state will collude with the care provider and the hospital. Um, so it, it, I can understand how the people in the, po you know, the the postmasters felt, the sub postmasters felt mm. because, you know, they, as you said, they knew they were in the right. They knew they'd done nothing wrong. And yet the names were pulled through, you know, pulled through the mud. And they fought years and years and years to clear their names and get justice. And as you said, not all of them will, you know, 93 out of 790. And the post office now digging its heels in, saying it's going to resolve the, you know, and it's going to um, compensate um, those those people. And in, as I said before, it's not. It's, it's doing everything in its power to stop them, you know, um, pursuing their claims, mm. you know. Well, I mean, so, very mm. harrowing story there of like you and your mum and like, and definitely relatable to the case of the, with the post office scandal of just not being able to, being gridlocked by kind of bureaucracy and legality of 
like well absolutely and i think as i was saying about social media you look on social media what as i say this is in my sort of domain of social care and health and people who make it have made their parallel immediately because it's resonated with them because they have found themselves at the mercy of the state and you know um the victim of um you know state agendas and um and not able to get justice i mean the the um public ombudsman who is is the, your last port of call really so you in the care sector so if you've got complaints about uh, the nhs or you've got complaints about uh, care homes you go to the cqc if it's care homes and and and, and hospitals um if you don't get anywhere with that complaint, um, then you can take it to the ombudsman. But the ombudsman deals with about 1% of cases, 1%, and many of those are not upheld. So you can see how demoralising it is for people um, to take on the state. Mm. Because, you know, the, the state, the thing is, the state is not benign, you know, it's people think it's there to you know to look after us from the cradle to the grave um if only you know mm. it's i mean our services are, are crumbling around our feet um social care is unfit for purpose the nhs is totally broken from top to bottom as renee Honderkamp said yeah. in uh, her, her when she she contributed to a, an event we did on on social care on uh, unpaid carers and uh, I mean, she said this many times in her in her presentations. It is broken. It's thoroughly broken, and the public is paying the price. And um, when they try to do battle and get their rights, or and 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 get the care that their loved ones need, they um, or, or get redress for mistakes that have gone wrong um, or injustices. It's it's impossible nigh impossible as i said unless you've got very deep pocket pockets and very very resilient mm. yeah and i think that links with kind of the whole notion that we live in a democracy like we live in a democracy if you have money but if you don't have money we don't live in a democracy it's like the legal system with even if you get caught with something or you could be on bail but if you don't have the money for bail or if you go if you have loads of money, like you see all these celebrities, they get all these lawsuits or they get accused of something or there's mountains of evidence or something, but because they have money, they can get out of it. So it's not a, it's not really yes. innocent. And, and Horizon, has, you know, has employed the, the you know, the, the, the top, you know, barristers and lawyers to, to fight their case and, and, and obstruct um, those, you know, the, the post, the sub postmasters um, pursuing their claims, you know, and, this is it. it. It's not a fair playing field by any means. And um, and when you think somebody's tried 80 lawyers just to take on a case, um, it, it, it's, um, it just shows, it just illustrates how demoralising it is for people. Mm. Yeah, so um, sad. Um, moving on to like the next next story with Reform UK and what's going on there. So there's a by-election that's been called in well, Wellingborough, Borough, and Ben Habib, who's deputy leader of Reform, has put himself up. Now, this is a massive, massive move by Reform because he's their deputy leader. He's kind of their third man. Ben Habib, then Richard Tice, then Nigel, and he's going to stand now here. And this is a Brexit, super Brexit stronghold, super Tory blue place, kind of older skeptical of immigration so there's a good chance that this could actually be a place where 
reform actually have a chance and if they break through this could be crazy so ben habib said when i when i announced my join of reform uk last year i was intention was to obliterate the tory party they have beaten me to it the reason i'm standing in Wellborough is because it's not efficient anymore to simply defeat the tories we have to lead the way so what are your thoughts are kind of reform ben habib standing here and the kind of the pushing of third parties because we have a lot of third parties popping up everywhere but what are your thoughts of like this specific specific move well i think ben habib proved himself to be a very you know um a, a very smart um very smart man while he was uh, an mep um uh, i followed his speeches and I, I found him to be a man of you know great integrity and um and passion and passion for politics, passion for changing things. And, you know, I'm not a reform supporter myself. It's I'm it's not my political politics, really. Um, uh, but I think it's we need more uh, parties to um, new parties to break the deadlock in Parliament, because at the moment, our political class is not serving the interests of the public. Um, whether reform will, um, if it were to succeed, um, we don't know. But I think they're far more. They are more popular. Um, they're rise. You know, they're 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 rising in the polls. Um, and I think we should welcome new parties and independents as well. And I think um, you know there are quite a few small parties. And there's SDP. I mean, um, I quite like the SDP, but however, they don't have a great pull on the public, unfortunately. But, you know, uh, policy wise, that's probably the closest to my politics, you know, um, they're economically to the left um, on social issues. They're, they're more central. Um, they don't agree with, you know, the stuff around uh, trans education in schools. They don't, you know, they're good on social care. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that we need, and I think we need more parties. I think we need more political parties to rise up from the grassroots. And I think, you know, that's really what Together is about. Together is not a political party. Um, you know, I'm the chair of um, uh, social care of the Together Declaration Cabinet. Um, and Together is not a political party, but it, its aim is to mobilise the public around the issues that concern them and to build momentum for change. And that may lead to new parties forming. It's not, you know, Together is not a political party, but it is defending the public interest, getting the public involved in politics and putting the, the public at front yeah. and centre. Yeah, Together isn't a political party. Uh, it's about putting the public front and centre of, of, of politics and discussion and debate. Um, it's championing freedom of speech, uh, championing um, the public against uh, impositions such as net zero um, and, and, and mobilising people to demand change in, in the NHS and the social care. I mean, all the things that are concerning to the public. It was quite interesting. Matt Goodwin um, published something uh, a few weeks ago, and he there was a poll recently about. I don't think I'm not sure if he commissioned the poll, but uh, there was a, a poll that was commissioned uh, that showed the the top um, concerns of the British public. 
health was number one. You know, I think net zero was somewhere down, you know, in the first top 10, maybe around the environment rather. Um, and um, but social care was a bit further down the line. But I think that's also because when people think of social care, they think of people in their twilight years, you know, in a care home. That's not only what social care is about. And I think that social care is so entwined with health that um, I think it's a very key issue that we will need to, all parties will need to get get their heads around because we need urgent, urgent reform. And I'm not so sure looking at reforms policy proposals that, um, I mean, it just talks about really giving more money to those on the, you know, the front line, the care workers, the the, the hospital staff, you know, not feeding the the massive bureaucracy. And I, I'd agree with all that, but it's not enough. We need huge, you know, huge reform in, in the NHS and uh, social care. And uh, the two need to be, we, we need to stop having this artificial division between the two. Um, because what it ha what happens is families who are you know looking for um, solutions to their care and, and uh, care needs are finding that they're they're locked in a battle and they're in the middle between social services saying well it's not our responsibility this person's got nursing needs so NHS has to pay for this and then NHS say no no it's it's mainly so and so the family is left in the middle fighting you know mm. not knowing where to turn. And it's a very artificial division because most people who require social care, especially those elderly, require nursing, uh, have, have nursing needs as well. Many, many have nursing needs. So um, I think this is an artificial division. And it's not one that I see that reform has had made any mention of. Um, uh, I think the STP believes that the, it's an artificial division and that should be ended. Um, I think that would be a good place to start, really. But it's such a huge, huge issue. And, you know, it, it's been in need of reform for decades. But I think what happened during the pandemic with lockdown and the precedence that was set. And now we've got this, you know, this huge, huge backlog of, uh, of people waiting to be seen. Huge, long waiting lists. People waiting for hours for, for you know, an ambulance, waiting hours in outside A&E, finally getting in, you know, out, you know, months and months and months of operations. And during the pandemic course, you know, a lot of the excess deaths we're seeing now, are, you know, are because people did not get the medical care and attention they needed during lockdown. They weren't diagnosed. They were suffering from, you know, serious conditions including cancer i mean carl sicora has been very very good at um calling out um on 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 this you know emphasizing the huge huge increase in cancer cases um and many people will have lost their lives who could have been saved i mean cancer has impacted my own family my my brother has uh, stage four lung cancer uh, i myself had breast cancer I thank God that our cancer was discovered before before lockdown. Yeah, wow. Mm. Yeah, I think like there's there's so much um there's so many issues right now in the UK from like mm. net zero impositions to the NHS in absolute tatters to culturally where we're at, 
Um, and then we got there's other controversial stuff that we won't go into, um, which is definitely on the rise as well. Um, and like so many, so many issues. I think I guess reform of their big focus is net zero. Um, that health is a kind of kind of big one for them. Stopping the boats, um, lowering taxes, and increasing growth which is which is good but you you're right about how kind of they're playing party politics the same that other parties do in the way they kind of constantly attack labor or they'll have like kind of cultural issues rather than just addressing the real policies and then people do get hurt from them oh it's interesting what you said rory about the you know the the cultural stuff um and i you know if i look at health and social care I said before that there needs to be, you know, far-reaching reform. I mean, radical, radical reform. But there, in addition to the money problem, yes, we need more investment in the NHS. Yes, the NHS wastes a lot of money, um, certainly with its bureaucracy. Um, but we need it's. You're not going to solve the crisis just by um, throwing more money at it. Um, and that seemed to be reform's policy was to, um, you know, invest more money. Um, and I think that there needs to be a huge cultural shift in the NHS as well. And I was talking to two consultants uh, the other week, and this was in, in some conversations uh, prior to our event. And, you know, they were saying they don't really recognise the NHS now. Um, I'm speaking to nurses, you know, who who became nurses, you know, maybe in the 70s and 80s, and they say they don't recognise the NHS anymore. It's not the NHS that they went into work, you know, that they had a vocation and they went into the NHS because they wanted to, you know, um, they had compassion, they wanted to care for people, they wanted to treat people. And um, now it seems to be run by heartless um um, bureaucrats who are more concerned about budgets than actual care and this seems to be determining a lot of policy um, and if I look at you know the continuing healthcare which is part of uh, the NHS which is for people who um, need social care but have nursing needs and it's funded by the NHS um, if I look at that the it's all about budgets and they will they will try to downgrade people's needs in order to minimize the amount of money they have to spend on people. So people are spending hours, you know, hours, sorry, excuse me, months trying to get an assessment. And then uh, when they finally get an assessment, they're told, well, you know, you can do this, you can do that. Well, oh, yeah, we think you can do this, we can you can do that. Therefore, we're only going to provide you with this much of, of a care package. And it's totally inadequate. And the family end up having to come in and, and fill the gaps, you know. And so we've got nine million uh, unpaid carers in this country. Um, this is families who are looking after their loved ones at home. And they might not all have given up their jobs, but an awful lot of them have done. They've had to. And, you know, there's no support for them. I mean, if you're an unpaid carer and you are caring for a spouse in your, you know, in your 70s and you're drawing a pension, there's no care allowance for you. Um, there's care allowance for people under that age um, and you have to work about 35 hours a week in order to get the poultry amount which I think is 70 76 pounds or something now something around that that figure 
Um, Seventy-six pounds. Uh, I was doing when I was caring for my mother. I was working ninety to one hundred twenty hours. You know, it's totally inadequate. And the thing is, it has an economic impact as well. You know, because if all these people are having to diminish their 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 working time, you know, cut back on their working time, work part time, or give up their job altogether, how are we going to have the tax revenues? in order to, you know, invest in social care. We need to have a far more dynamic economy. And reform talks about economic growth. But what is its proposals to get us there? Um, and I haven't seen very much talked about that. I mean, when I've seen Tice on, on GB News, for example, I've seen a couple of interviews with him, and he gets very animated. And he says, oh, we've got to, we've got to smash uh, socialism. Um, I don't think that's very useful, you know, and like I was saying before, I don't think the that the the the, the argument around left and right, I don't find it's very useful. So, you know, this idea we've got to smash socialism. I'm thinking, where? What socialism? You know, and I think people think these days they're thinking of socialism as, you know, um some of the policies that are coming round are, you know, of, of net zero or the stuff around trans education, uh, they see this as some sort of socialist project. I don't find it a socialist project at all. Um, I find it very draconian and um, very neoliberal in its uh, in its political stance. So the idea that these policies are, are, are socialist is, is quite frankly laughable. And I think he should be a lot more serious about you know, the, the policies focus more on the policies and rather than attacking Labour or attacking the left, um, I don't think it's very useful. And if you think of the Bre how the Brexit vote was won, it was won because of the massive uh, number of people from the Red Wall areas who voted for the Brexit party. And for, and for, and sorry, for the Brexit party, for the Tory party. They were not Tories. But they decided to, you know, hold their noses and vote Tory um, or the Brexit Party because they wanted to get Brexit done. Mm, yeah, no, that's um, a, that that's a brilliant point. I think about how d even just from a strategic perspective, insulting a big demographic of people with their political leanings isn't going to do anything for a form long run. Like him talking about con-socialism or socialist, and you're right about how old school leftism is not what modern day like liberalism and progressivism is like there's there's a connotation of like progressivism equals you are left wing when actually if you boil down a lot of kind of so-called socialists or lefties today a lot of them won't be lefties they won't stand up for free speech they won't be anti-lockdown no. they won't be anti-big they won't be anti-fire to take control yes mm. absolutely and um i totally agree and i yeah yeah um so speaking of like kind of well i i kind of trans yeah transitioning to what you do and what kind of you've been exposing of potentially another major scandal so you're a social care advocate and you campaign for certain things do you want to go into kind of what what you do and some of the things around that to do with during COVID, the care homes and also end of life treatment that was given out and kind of things to that and kind of explain from the, 
from to anyone who has zero clue about any of this what what has actually been happening in care homes right um i think i was saying before that you know the, the care sector has been overdue for reform for for decades however what happened during the pandemic was that care homes were suddenly given powers that they had not had before and were able to stop families coming in now there were some very good care homes who went out of the way to facilitate visiting who um, before the tests were given out by the government went to source their own so that they could um, facilitate visiting um, they didn't wait for the government to dip in you know for the government to pay for the tests they went out and sourced them themselves but they were very very rare and some of the you know some of those people were beacons of light and they were trying to reach out to other care providers and other care home managers and say that it can be done we can show you how it can be done uh, we can facilitate visiting and um I think for for many care unscrupulous care providers, this provided a great opportunity for them to shut their doors and you know um, carry on without the interference of families. And often families are seen as interference. And during the time I was campaigning, you know, my mother was in a care home. Twenty twenty, I came back from Italy. Um, I'd lived there for twenty three years. Uh, because they were closing the border and I didn't know when they were going to open it again, what was going to happen. My mother was in care home. I usually visited her every two weeks uh, from Italy. I'd fly back. So I decided, right, I'm going to have to um, go back to the UK and uh, hopefully this will blow over in a couple of months and it'll be all over and, you know, I can go back to Italy. It never happened. I'm still here. Um but what I saw in the care home, I did get into the care home. I had one hour a week because my mother was deemed to be um, at end of life. I mean, that under the, the nice um, definition of end of life, that is the last year of life. It doesn't mean imminent. However, in most care homes uh, during the pandemic, they were interpreting and the hospitals did the same. So you've got nice guidance saying it's the last year of life. But they were saying, no, it's the last couple of you know days of life, last 48 hours. So if your loved one was not deemed to be at end of life under those, um, under that kind of categorization, um, you wouldn't get a visit. Um, I was fortunate I did get a visit one hour a week, one hour a week, seven hours round trip from Cambridgeshire to Cheshire. And my I would find my mum, who was bed bound. Um, often um, asleep. Um, she'd been drugged up on lorazepam because what they did during the pandemic, um, my mum was already on lorazepam for agita agitation, but she should not have been on it for so long. Um, the the normal, I think the, the upper limit is sort of six months, I believe, and then it should be reviewed. It was never reviewed. My mum was on it for two years during the pandemic. Uh, and despite the fact that she lost half her body weight, she went from a size... 14 to a size 12 in I think 2020 and then from a size 12 to a size 6 in 2021 my mum was a skeleton and so they were and we, we have care workers on record saying that um, they were giving out lorazepam like smarties because uh, they wanted to keep the the residents quiet and stop them uh, walking around the care home so in, instead of in bringing in more staff to manage this, 
They carried on with their shoestring staff and then kept people in their rooms, uh, drugging them up to, you know, keep them quiet because they were screaming out and um, agitated, distressed. They weren't seeing their families and uh, to stop them wandering around because people with dementia do wander around, you know. So it's it's horrific what was happening. And, you know, I was one of the fortunate people that did have one hour a week. It was nothing. My mum had dementia. Somebody with dementia who's denied access to family. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand what a pand- the pandemic was all about. They didn't, you know, they suddenly see people in PPE. I mean, quite frightening. All masked up. I mean, I was told that I wasn't allowed to give my mother a drink in the, in, in the time I was there. My mum was desperate for a drink. I was told I wasn't allowed to give her a drink. Well, quite frankly, I d- didn't listen to that. I closed the door and I, I gave my mum a drink. But if I'd been caught, and once I was caught taking a cupcake for my mum's 85th birthday, I took in a little cupcake. She loved coffee cake. And I took in a little cupcake with a candle. And I said to the carer, can you give this to my mum for her tea, please? You know, it's her birthday. And um, and uh, our, the manager caught me. And she said, right, that's it. Um, You're not allowed to do this. And if you do this again, I'm going to ban you and I can do that. And it was like they almost like a pleasure that some of the, some, not talking all care staff, obviously, this was a, a deputy manager, but it was that newfound power over the family. And um, I just... I I wanted to say my piece. I'm not usually a person to keep quiet in that, you know, somebody said something like that to me. I thought if I do, I won't see my mum again. Mm. So I had to just swallow swallow it. Wow. I went out into the car park and I just broke down. You know. I mean the the it was just cruel. It was cruel. And um my mother, you know, she was saying, You you've abandoned me. Um, why don't you come? Why didn't you come? She didn't understand. She did not understand. She thought we had abandoned her, you know, and the trauma that caused. So it's not just the suffering of those who were in care homes, um, the residents themselves and being denied family access and love and support. And also, of course, you've got the fact that families know their, their their loved ones far better than care staff, especially if they've just been brought in or they're temporary or they're, they're bank staff or, you know, they know their loved one more and they're more likely to pick up when something is wrong, you know, when they're ill or, you know, something's wrong and raise their concerns. If they're not, they're stuck outside a window, um, they're not going to be able to see that or... And often I'd go in and I'd have to call the doctor myself because, the, you know, the GPs were not going in. They weren't going into the care homes. And people were having to, as I said earlier, be triaged by a care worker who is not medically trained to get access to a doctor over a Skype call. Now, if you've got dementia, you, it's very unlikely you can even describe your symptoms, let alone, you know... <laughs> They needed to be seen and they needed to be treated, but there was a policy from March 2020, and I was told this by the the, the care home manager. Nobody would, uh, the doctors would not be going in. If somebody got sick, they would not be going to hospital. If they got sick with COVID, they would not be having, you know, oxygen. Uh, they wouldn't be supported and they would not receive treatment. And I saw it in a three week period in my mother's care home. 11 
residents who were not end of life died. So they refused to treat. And they did not die. Yeah, apparently they did not. Uh, there was only one of them who was suspect COVID. So it's very, it could have been more. Of course, we didn't have the testing there. There could be more who died, but they could have died of influenza. It's also the the time of influenza. They could have died of a urinary tract, you know, uh, infection. Um, but they were not being treated and therefore they were not getting the antibiotics they needed and they their bodies gave up and then, you know, they they their their lives were lost. So who who told you that they no one was gonna get treated for anything or any doctors were gonna come in? Was that the care home manager? Yeah, her manager. That's what wow. she told me. And um later on the doctors did come in from about July, I think it was in my mother's care home, June or July. They started to come in. But in order to get that visit, you know, um, I mean, I've seen my mum struggling to breathe. And, you know, and I I could see that she had a chest infection. And the care the care staff had no concerns, you know. I mean, flashback to 2019, I came back from, uh, I was on a visit from Italy Um and I found my mum in the in the care home in a chair, gasping for breath, crying. God. Help me, help me, somebody help me. They were just ignoring her. And I had to get them to call 111. Paramedics came. My mum had aspiration pneumonia. And she was hospitalized. And that was the first time they tried to put my mum on the on the end of life pathway, which we're going to talk about in a in a moment. Wow. I mean that sound I mean that is just absolutely horrific and it's just one of many of the atrocious costs of lockdown from care homes to and the nhs to kids to abuse to eating disorders wherever it is it's just absolutely horrific and and the the thing that no one wants to address as well with care homes i remember bbc news they did like a whole segment on this when there was all this talk of care home crisis and there wasn't one mention about the forty thousand who got sacked because of the vaccine mandate and how can we address such a major issue when we can't even acknowledge thousands of people who who got let off during the pandemic and we need a serious apology from the government of saying we are sorry we did this because how can we sort this out because who's going to go back to the care sector when they won't even acknowledge that there were 40,000 people who got sacked, you know? Well, yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's you know, why would you go back to work in the care sector? Um, so coming back to care workers, yes, absolutely. You know, care workers uh, work very gruelling shifts, 12 hours a day um, full time and uh, for very little um, comp- uh, for, for very little money. Um, very poor training. Um, they're out, often out on a limb, and if they if they whistleblow about poor care, if they can you know raise issues within the care home, um, they will often find themselves ostracised and out of a job. Um, so it's not a, a very attractive industry to work in, and it need that needs to change. We need to have a a, a social care sector that um, does not put money uh, profit before care. And that's one of the big problems. Mm. Does not have this artificial division between social care and the NHS. And one that adequately trains and adequately pays the people that work in it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, do, do, um, so move it, kind of moving on to the end of life care and that and kind of talking a bit about the event that's going to be hosted. 
um do you want to kind of talk about what like again to anyone who has no clue about end-of-life care or what's going on in that in the uk or what did go on do you want to give like a bit of an explanation yeah absolutely so um i first became aware of end-of-life care in 2019 when um my mother was discharged too early from the hospital uh against our wishes and um i rushed back to find my mum slumped in a chair she had no support uh, she couldn't even keep her, her body upright. And uh, I realised that she was still very unwell. And I, the care worker, you know, I, I raised my concerns with the care worker and said, could we please call out an out-of-hours doctor? And she said, oh, she does look a bit peaky. And I thought, well, yes, a bit more than just a bit peaky. But, you know, so the doctor comes and basically said, your mother's uh, dying and um, she's, I don't think she's going to get better. She's very poorly. She's still got um, pneumonia. They've discharged her, um, in my opinion, too early. But reading between the lines of the discharge notes, they have discharged your mother back to the care home to die. I suggest making her comfortable and and that would be it sort of thing. And I thought about it and I thought making her comfortable. And it all sounded very nice, you know. And then I thought of what that actually meant. It may, basically meant putting my own mother to sleep. And my mother was a, um, an evangelical Christian. She did not believe in, um, in assisted dying. And she would not want her end to be fast-tracked through drugs. She would have said, my God decides when I go. And I thought, no, I'm not going to allow this to happen. And um, and so I stayed by my mum's. I had stayed in the hospital for two weeks. I mean, this is another thing. You know, I'd been in Italy. My mum had got this. I told you I'd come into the home and found my mum with pneumonia and she was put into hospital. I stayed for the three days of the weekend and um, and then went back to Italy because the, the hospital said she's fine. She's responding well to the antibiotics. My brother lived nearby and I thought, great, she'll, she'll be fine. And then I get the call to say that she's deteriorated and I rush back. And they're saying she's not eating or drinking. Um, she's refusing. It turns out, they, of course, they didn't have the staff to actually support my mum. You know, I think she might have had a stroke. I don't know. But she seemed to have lost some, um, she seemed to have some paralysis on one side of the body. Um, and very little information given. Um, but I decided that I would, I was working freelance. I was able to give up you know, to stop work for a couple of weeks. I stayed by my mum's side in the hospital and tried to get her to a point where she was eating and drinking. And then I went for a half a day break. Um, I'd been doing it for two weeks. And so can you please put my mum on the drip uh, while I'm gone because she needs support with fluids. Um, please don't discharge her. And they did the exact opposite. And um, so I ended up spending another couple of weeks in the care home um, uh, having to um, stay with a, a friend of my mother's in the town, in, in, in nearby town, and um, I nursed my mum back to health. She certainly wasn't going to get that from the care staff, not because I'm saying they were uncaring, but they did not have the resources. Some of them were very uncaring, but they didn't have the resources, and I knew that if I didn't stay there, my mum would would die. Um, and so. 
My mum got better. She was still bed bound. They did nothing to rehabilitate her. I begged them to give her rehabilitation so she could walk again. You know, um, but they did nothing. She became bed bound um, and um, she deteriorated. And obviously this had a huge impact on her, her mental state as well. My mum had Alzheimer's, but this really set her back. I mean, this the cognitive decline in the hospital. And obviously, if, you, if you're if you being starved for, for and, and not getting drink for weeks, days, you know, this is going to have a huge impact on you. And often, you know, um, people who are in hospitals are um, suffer from dehydration. And this is often confused with, uh, you know, and they get delirium and this is confused with dementia. My mum did have dementia. But in many cases, people have been diagnosed with dementia when um, dementia when actually they're suffering from delirium but to come back to the end of life so the first time was in 2019 that my mum was in I, we were encouraged to put my mother on the pathway what is called the the palliative care or end of life pathway which is basically the administration of medications usually midazolam and morphine to to fast track life um death um and that's what it means by making comfortable. So when I ever I heard that phrase again, and it's used throughout the NHS, um, alarm bells ring in my head. And I encourage anybody who has got a loved one in a hospital who starts to hear the words, make them comfortable to to really investigate this and not to um, to, to to really look into the alternatives because um, what is happening. Is families, you know, it's even happening now that um, we have a, a case that we have been helping uh, of a lady who um, was admitted. She was an elderly lady, but she was very fit, very uh, active. I think she had a, a stroke. Um, so she she lost her swallowing. Doesn't mean she'd always, you know, she wouldn't get her swallowing back. But the risk was she might not get it back, but she really needed a feeding tube to sustain her, right? And the hospital refused. They said it was inappropriate. Why? Because she's elderly, she's basically had her innings. And we had um, a doctor was actually um, recorded surreptitiously. And the doctor said, these are not your decisions to the son. These are not your decisions to make. They are our decisions to make. Now, under the NHS constitution, um, families should be involved in all decisions about a loved one's care if they lack capacity or you know they're too ill to make those decisions themselves. And they are supposed to consult with the family. But what I found in my my case, and I can talk a little bit about more about that, and in this case, is that the consultation is not a real consultation. It's not let's get the family together uh, with the medics and we discuss it and we, we come up with a plan. It's basically, we've decided the plan. We decided this life is not worth saving anymore. And this is our policy. And we will tell the family about this. And by telling them we're consulting, you know, that is not consultation. So there should be informed consent around end, end of life care. Now, there are some people who... I really are at the end of life, you know, last three days, last week, weeks of life, who are in terrible pain. They might be suffering from cancer or some other condition. They're in terrible pain. And the use of end of life drugs would be, you know, for some people who, if they consent to it, would be the the, the right option. <clears throat> uh, 
However, what happened during the pandemic is we had two um, two protocols that were brought in. Basically, in March um, 2020, uh, NG163 was brought in, NICE Guidance 163. And basically, this was the livable care pathway. Now, the livable care pathway was a notorious um, protocol uh, which was banned in 2014 because it was deemed to be uh, being abused and draconian and barbaric. I mean, basically, people were being starved and dehydrated to death and then finished off with um, a cocktail of drugs. And there were incentives for hospitals to put people on these pathways. It was a terrible scandal and it was rightly banned. But unfortunately, it's carried on under the radar. And talking to consultants um, who worked in the NHS, one of whom is a palliative care consultant, um, he told me that, you know, it's still going on. And, you know, some of the, one of these um, positions actually contributed to um, NG31, which is the end of life protocol, the general under, uh, end of life protocol. And but he said that, you know, he stands by that, but it's being abused. It's being abused. So people who are not at end of life are being put on these pathways. So my mother was put first in 2019. 2021, she was put back on the pathway when she was admitted to hospital from her nursing home. And I was not allowed to go in. And day seven, they called me and said, she's dying now, you can come in. And I go there and I find that my mum's been put on the pathway. They have taken away all her medications. She'd gone in there for pneumonia. They'd taken away all her medications. And they'd, um, they said that she wasn't eating and drinking enough to sustain life. But when I actually asked the nurse on duty the, the day I got in, um, uh, how much has my mother had to drink? She's in the last 14 hours. She said five mils as a teaspoon. Wow. They weren't trying to sustain her. They weren't trying to offer her a drink. And so um, I was told, your mother's on the pathway now. And I said, well, I'm sorry again. I said, no, um, we don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I'm my mum's lasting power of attorney. And my mother, as a Christian, would not agree with that either. So um, I'd like you to take her off the pathway and reinstate her medications, please. No. Um, I try to contact the CEO, I the 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 consultant, you know, I I tried everything. I approached a charity that supports people uh, around visiting in hospitals, John's campaign. It turns out the hospital, which was Hinchingbrook Hospital, had actually signed up to the pledge of John's campaign, which is to support people with dementia with visiting uh, in whatever the conditions, you know, whatever uh, is happening. Um, so people like my mum should have had access. Now, she didn't. And of course, she didn't receive food and she didn't receive drink. She wasn't encouraged. And a friend of ours who was a retired doctor had actually, when they opened visiting for my mum, because she was now deemed to be end of life, he came in to see her. And he, and he told me, I think this is it, Amanda. She's, you know, she's going to go. And I thought, right, I'm going to, I've been here twice before. I'm going to fight again for her. I fed her. I gave her drink. My mum pulled round. I then faced a battle to get her medications reinstated. They wouldn't. I had to go to the court of protection. I got my mum home and I cared for her for 14 months. And she would have lived longer had she not 
if she hadn't got cold sepsis and it was untreated because the GP didn't come out or listen to my concerns for four days. My mum was diagnosed with cold sepsis four hours before she died. Now, if the doctor had come when I'd called the doctor and, you know, realised what was happening, she could have been saved. And my mum had had, you know, a good life. Um, but that does not mean that she should be denied more of that life if there was an opportunity for her to be treated. And this is what's happening to families who, and not just in hospitals, in care homes as well. You know, people are, certainly during lockdown, what happened, people obviously, you know, they weren't seeing their families. They they became very isolated. If they were bedbound like my mum, the only time they saw staff was when they, they were fed and usually the staff were very short-staffed, and so they'd go in, and if the person didn't eat in 15 minutes, they'd go out. My mum lost over half her body weight. I mean, from a size 12 in 2020 to a size 6 in 2021 when I got her out of the, the care home. Wow. <clears throat> that is, I mean, that is so, so harrowing uh, that the it, government are conducting, I mean, yeah, like... Because government fund institutions, which is the NHS, is pushing people to go on this pathway that leads them to deaths. I mean, that is just horrific. And kind of moving into the event that you're hosting. Um, so you're, you're hosting an event with speakers like Andrew Bridge and stuff. Do you want to give like a little talk about that? That there is six minutes left of this, this okay. Zoom. Right. <laughs> Um, so. Right. Yeah. So the event that we're holding on the 17th of January is with um, we have three speakers who are going to talk about excess deaths, uh, but not we're not going to be talking about um, vaccine harms or the other harms from lockdown. So we talked before about people not getting diagnosed with cancer and other conditions and, and dying and becoming very, very ill. Um, um, and so many of the excess deaths will be those people. But there are hidden factors, and one of the hidden factors that is not talked about is end-of-life pathways and how these have impacted um, the excess death certificates. Uh, families believe, you know, thousands of people have lost their lives in this way. And um, as I said, what is happening is people being put on these pathways. Now, NG163 is no more. Uh, it's been replaced by NG191. And while that has been updated, in the two years between one six uh, between March 2020 and November, the drugs that were recommended on those pathways suppressed uh, repressed suppressed breathing. So they um, they were administered with midazolam and morphine, which represses breathing. And if you had a respiratory illness and you were given that, you didn't have a chance. And as I said before, it's not just the drugs, it's the process. So in my mother's case, but in thousands of other cases, and we talked to lots and lots of families. I mean, I'm in touch with about 100 families this has happened to. And it starts with the redor of food and fluids and treatment. And people who are not at end of life, people who, if they were treated and given a chance, could may leave another six months. 14 months in my mother's case, and if we take from 2019 when she was first uh, put on the pathway, she lived another three and a half years, and doctors are playing God, basically. So this palliative care consultant 
who was one of 11 physicians who had written to NICE to suggest that they urgently review the guidance because it was frankly dangerous. And in on November the 30th, this uh, last year, the actual reference to the drugs, which are a, basically a death cocktail, were removed from the guidance. Um, and they, NICE said to refer to NG31 for further guidance. So, so the event we have put on for the 17th, we have um, some very important speakers. We have Andrew Bridgen, who has actually talked, um, spoken about the use of midazolam and morphine and end-of-life pathways, and is aware of the, the, the fact that they are um, a part of the excess deaths. We have um, Patrick Piluccino, who is um, a retired uh, physician, and he um, he was very influential in getting the Liverpool Care Pathway banned. However, as I said before, it's still operating under the radar. We know this. Uh, regardless of the NG163 and 191, these practices are ongoing. Um, and then we have Kevin Yule, who is the founder of uh, Humanists Against Assisted Dying and Euthanasia. And he will be looking at the whole... The, it from the from the aspect of if things are bad now, if these practices are going on now, what will happen if assisted dying legislation would become, you know, the assisted dying bill was to become law? Um, this would encourage more and more people to end their lives prematurely. And we've already got the state doing that for them. Um, so that's that's the event. It's a public event. We There will be people um, speaking from the audience as well. We invite everybody to come along. If you feel that your loved one has been impacted with this, you're suspicious that this might have happened, or you're just interested in getting to grips with what's behind the excess death statistics, we really encourage you to come along and join us on the 17th, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. So definitely check out that event. I'll link everything to that in the description. So definitely check that out. And kind of concluding, I think like this could be, you know, like like similar to the post office scandal, something that in months or years to come does get revealed because Andrew Bridge and, and people like him have been, t you know, behind the curve on these scandals. And it sounds beyond horrendous what is happening of government assisted killing pretty much in in the most kind of straightforward way like if yeah, it'll be really interesting to see kind of different families speak at this event and everything and thanks for coming on the show and kind of sharing this with us and the harrowing story of you and your mother and full credit to you fighting for her and everything and just goes to show like people in authority aren't always right and that you can um make a difference and you shouldn't just accept kind of yes as an answer, but always keep fighting. And you've really shown that. Is there any last words to people listening or watching? Yeah. Um, I think that I'd like to say something about together and together social care. Um, when I was asked um, by together to take on the uh, role of leading the social care um, team, I kind of jumped at the chance because um, it's something I feel very, very passionate about. Uh, and I believe there needs to be urgent, urgent change. And I don't see any of the political parties out there really advocating for this. And as I said earlier, on uh, a recent poll, 
health was what the top issue for the public. I think the economy was, I think, second. Um, I really can't remember. But health was right up there as an issue that was very, very important to the public. And together is about, you know, uh, get, getting the public involved in politics, getting the, the, the public mobilised around the issues that concern them and helping to give them a voice. And um, I strongly encourage people to join together and uh, to get involved in our campaigns. And if anybody out there is interested in getting involved with the social care campaign, please get in touch. Um, you can get in touch with me via my Twitter handle. You can DM me. Um, I also have a group that I've, uh, another um, Twitter handle, uh, Unlock Care Homes, and a third one, which I've I've set up to campaign around the issue of end-of-life protocols, and that's called Families Against Medical Euthanasia. And our Twitter handle is at EOLwatch. So if you're interested in learning more about this, do get in touch with us. Thanks very much. Definitely. And yeah, all, all be linked down below and definitely check out Together and become a member because they're a fantastic organisation doing more than anything just on the front lines, actually making change happen, live events, campaigns, petitions, lobbying, you name it, they're doing it. So definitely go check that out and check out all the Twitter handles linked below. But thanks so much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. And make sure to check out her socials and also follow me at reg podcast and share this with a friend or family member someone who is completely unaware of the atrocities that are being undertaken in the uk and what you know what could unfold is a similar post office scandal part two and we started off talking about that but we're years after that's happened we're right now this is happening or has just happened so get involved and share this with a friend someone who needs to hear these conversations who won't hear this on mainstream media and that's also the only way the podcast grows but thanks so much for listening everybody um love you all and i'll see you next thursday at six o'clock it's a bye from me yeah it's bye from me thank <laughs> you very much for having me on thanks bye